Welcome to Humdrum History. Join me as I explore what it might have been like to follow some of the greatest leaders known to history. What would a cavalry commander of Alexander the Great have thought as he lined up on the dusty field of Galgamela? Can you imagine a conversation between Caesar's legionaries as they manned the double wall at the siege of Alessia and Cold War? What about those in the home front, running businesses and keeping empires moving as world-changing events happen around What stories might their lives hold? Humdrum History places you in the daily lives of the elite soldier, the provincial governor, and the simple baker. There's plenty we know about famous figures and their awe-inspiring achievements, but how do their decisions affect the lives of those not remembered? Who crossed which river when? That matters less for this podcast than what it might have been like to cross the river under Persian arrow fire, with heavy armour weighing you down. If you haven't heard the first episode yet, and want to understand the background and context to the story, go back and give it a listen first. When we left Menander in episode 1, he had just taken part in the Battle of Thebes in 335 BCE. To put that date in some context, the famous Battle of Thermopylae from the movie 300 happened 150 years before this. It's around the same time the Gaul is starting to put pressure on the borders of the Roman Republic, and we're roughly 100 years before the damaging Punic Wars between Rome and Carthage. In 68 BCE, 267 years after the events in this podcast, Julius Caesar will weep with shame when he understands the depth and scale of what Alexander achieved at the same age of 32. Now, in the Battle of Thebes, Menander took part in a crucial part of keeping the open city gate, helping to break the Theban infantry as they shook under the weight of that Macedonian pike infantry. Their four to six metre spears made it hard for the Greek hoplites to get close enough to engage, and their weight and discipline made these units like tanks on the ancient battlefield only truly vulnerable to distance attacks with bow and javelin and sling. Menander spurred his horse and led his heavy cavalry into the side of a Theban hoplite unit and helped to decimate their ranks and their morale in one thundering charge. Alexander was known for his use of the hammer and anvil battle strategy. Pike formations to fix the enemy and swift cavalry to hammer the flanks. It turned out to be a near-unstoppable combination. But, as Thebes burns and its inhabitants bleed their last onto the streets, and the city's put to the torch, Menander watches every single man in the city being killed, and every woman or child is enslaved, or sold, or used. As part of the elite cavalry force, Menander doesn't really take part in the executions, but he sees, and he hears, and he knows. It's a perfect opportunity now to go back into Menander's head, and try to see this world from his perspective after the battle. It wasn't the first time that Steele had met flesh in his life, but it was definitely the biggest, wildest and most dangerous moment in his life. He can remember that final second of chaos as he guided his horse under the infantry lines, not knowing if it would be his his last moment on on this world or not. In that second, he felt fear, panic, terror, aggression, anger, and probably some more fear as well. If you had time to think about that feeling of slamming a long spear into the back of a turning infantry soldier who didn't see you coming, What would occur to you? Do I care? That's a fairly important thing to consider when we view the world through Menander's eyes. Would a cavalry soldier in the Macedonian army feel a sense of guilt, remorse or trauma from wounding and killing the Theban troops? Or from seeing their women enslaved and their men executed en masse? Xenophon spoke of Spartan warriors who willingly chose war over peace and reveled in the the glory of combat and death. Livy tells of Roman soldiers becoming aggressive, suspicious and emotionless and cold after fighting in the Punic Wars against Carthage. 
In the medieval era, one writer described the life of a soldier like this, quote, You see people killing each other, fleeing, dying, and being taken prisoner, and you see the bodies of your dead friends lying before you, end quote. That's from Geoffrey de Charny. This suggests that there were elements of trauma and suffering that we would recognise today as being psychologically scarring. However, these are societies built by combat and war. The Macedonian people were particularly aggressive and considered drunken, angry barbarians by the more civilised Greek states. This is an era of torture, execution and personal violence that we do not recognise. The brutality and stark violence shown in excellent series like HBO's Rome or Game of Thrones, they show these worlds as they really were. The majority of these characters were also pantheistic pagans, following the Greek gods of Zeus, Ares and Hades. They believed in an everlasting underworld, and hopefully an eternal lodging in Elysium, not Tartarus, their versions of heaven and hell. And so does Menander care about the death and killing around him? I think the only good speculative answer has to be, if you or I experienced this once, we'd be quivering wrecks for the rest of our lives. Most soldiers in this era, in this army, would experience this type of battle 10 or maybe even 50 times in their lives, small-scale and large-scale conflicts. Who knows what type of psychological trauma they would have, or, or not have? What type of conversation would Menander have with his closest friend the morning after the Battle of Thebes? I feel like it could go in one of three different directions. Pain, pride, or perplexion. Listen to these three small talk openings by Menander, and you can decide for yourself which one you'd choose for the occasion, considering what's just happened to you. Okay, here's our painful version. Oh my gods, I can't stop thinking about how the blood sprayed at my arm, and then I saw Alexandros being stabbed in the stomach by a spear, and he looked right at me. It was horrible. It could have been me or you. That's one definitely possible mind state after that battle, and one that I can easily imagine. Then we have the proud version of this small talk opening. Wow, gods, did you see how my spear took him when we charged in? I've never felt more alive. Another possible version, especially given the antagonism and brutality towards the enemy. And then finally, perhaps the most realistic version. Oh, gods, I can't sleep. It's like I'm excited and scared and nervous and thrilled. Zeus, what will the next battle be like? My personal impression is that these soldiers must have lived right on the edge of normal and manic. They were obviously aggressive and warring, but then they had long periods of marching, camping and doing nothing. Plenty of time for the demons to emerge and do havoc. But on the whole, that's not the vibe that you get from ancient sources. They can't have woken up feeling fresh and ready to, to kill or be killed after a quick coffee. But when it was asked of them, they seemed able to turn it on and then off again at relative will. Every future battle they entered, they did it knowing more and more, more about the crazy event that they were about to go through. It's truly difficult to imagine how someone could stay motivated to fight and risk their lives in this way, time and time again. But they must have done. There's no two ways about it. We know that armies gathered, they marched, they fought, and they fought again. There must have been soldiers, maybe in the Roman armies, that fought in more than 10 or even 20 large peace battles. Picture the weight of those previous battles, the fear, the noise, the death that would stay with you. That weight must have got heavier and heavier as they continued to fight. Perhaps the risk, the rewards, the challenges, maybe it created such a brotherhood, a bond in war, that they were able to overcome the trauma with friendship. Plenty of modern-day British and US infantry soldiers say their principal motivation, what really holds them together while they're deploying and fighting overseas, is their friends and brothers around them, keeping them safe, 
holding to higher standards, duty, bravery. These are all familiar concepts to anyone who studies military history. These are also features that often make for the most effective and cohesive armies. You might even call it morale. So we'll try to mix in this band of brothers type mentality into the traumatic side to create as realistic and interesting a representation as possible. So with all that in mind, Thebes is burned and destroyed. Athens submits and Greece is pacified. Alexander takes his renewed army to Turkey to the border between Asia and Europe, the Hellespont or Dardanelles in 334 BCE. And then a Persian force moves to oppose them, led by the fascinating Memnon of Rhodes, Arsimis and Arsitis. Before we jump into the next big battle, the Battle of the Granicus, I want to give you a perspective on numbers. I don't want to go into too much detail, as this podcast is about the individual perspective, but on the Macedonian Greek side, there were around 35 to 40,000 soldiers, mostly infantry, a core of around 10 to 12,000 heavy Macedonian troops, plus close to 5,000 cavalry soldiers and perhaps 1,000 archers. On the Persian side, Memnon and the Persian satraps, a rank like a, a governor prince, had brought a huge cavalry force of 10 to 20,000 riders, but a more limited infantry force. With perhaps 10 to 20,000 Greek hoplite mercenaries fighting on the Persian side, as was often the case in the Peloponnesian Wars. There'll be battles where more Greek mercenaries fight on the Persian side than on the free city-state Greek side. You wonder how that kind of thing can happen in a free democracy. Menander looked around him, and although the night was dark, he could still see the shining and glimmering metal on all sides. They'd been camped near to the River Granicus for several days, shadowing the Persian forces opposite and looking for an opportunity to cross. They tried to force their way across with heavy infantry against Persian soldiers, but the river made life too hard, and the Persian forces were too well placed. They'd taken heavy losses for that first try, so here they were, in the dead of the night, after a long march upriver. A crossing point was found, and the entire army had slunk away from the Persian force before dawn, and was crossing the river now. Menander was waiting his turn to cross, getting a vantage point over the river from horseback, he could hear the constant thumping, clanking, trudging. No matter how careful, it's impossible for thousands of armoured and armed men and horses to move even close to quietly. But they got ahead of the Persian force, full of cavalry as they'd seen crossing the river yesterday. If Memnon and his Persian generals were nearby and attacked soon, it would mean disaster for the army, and the river obstacle would mean death for many Macedonians and Greeks. But Menander saw space opening in front of him and gently kicked his horse forward, followed by his men. The river was cool and lightly flowing, and only came up to the knees of the infantry on the ground. From the moment he entered the water, Menander felt his heart begin to pound, and his ears strained harder than ever before. An attack now would be fatal. But no attack comes, and the whole army crosses the Granicus. The Macedonian phalanx, the cavalry wings, they reorganise and resettle. They begin to push to meet the Persians, now on the same side of the river as the Greeks and Macedonians. As the morning brings more light and clarity to the scene, Menander can see the dust that signals a fast-moving enemy, probably the enemy cavalry. He moves his hand over his chest, checking the ties in his linen breastplate and making sure he has a good hold on his spear. He looks back to the mounted soldiers following him, seeing the same emotions in their eyes that he's feeling, but hiding. How many Persians are there? Is this my last battle? Is this my last moment? But Menander also sees another look in their eyes. He sees anger and exhilaration too. He knows each and every man, and this isn't the first time they've fought and marched together. They feel scared, but they feel ready. 
They know the Persians need numbers and can't stand up to them when the fighting gets close and brutal. Now Dan Carlin does a great job when he describes some of the key differences between Persian and Western forces. And the idea of two American football teams facing off when only one is wearing pads and helmets and the other nothing gives you a great idea why Persian infantry wanted nothing to do with the Macedonian phalanx or the Greek hoplites. Menander hears a trumpet call close to him where Alexander is waiting with half the cavalry. The left cavalry flank moves forward and infantry begins to shift the left flank too. Heavily disciplined and organised, the Macedonian army can move smoothly and with relative cohesion and that allows them to the next move. As the Persians begin to react to that strong left flank threat, they start shuffling their own troops that way too, but they're not able to move with the same speed or discipline and cohesion and that means they're out of position and vulnerable. Menander waits and watches, seeing thousands of Greeks still sliding to the left and the Persians late but moving across too. Menander feels the tension build as the troops get closer and closer and his horse shies sideways as he puts too much tension on the reins. He looks to the right and sees Alexander on his huge black horse with the ox head marking. Menander knows that all this movement and threat is a feint. It's infantry and cavalry manoeuvring done exceptionally well as Alexander was known for. Just as the Persian line is almost completely strengthened on the Macedonian left flank, a new signal cry, louder and sharper than the other's sounds. Alexander spurs his horse forward, and although clouds of arrows drift over the shrinking gap between the two forces, he leads his heaviest cavalry right at the centre of the Persian line. Menander looks back to his men once more, shouts encouragements of bravery and duty and victory, and leads them on the heels of Alexander and his bodyguard into the no-man's land between the forces. The Persian cavalry come straight out at them, launching arrows and punching javelins into the sky as they ride. The flickering and hissing darts and arrows lazily hover in the sky before accelerating in a downward, horrifying arc. Many riders are hit, their horses injured, or their lives plucked from them. A second wave of projectiles is launched at Menander, and the riders around him, just 200 metres from the Persian cavalry at the front and centre of the battle line, who move straight towards them. Menander can see the archers and infantry just behind them, numerous but vulnerable. The hissing and thuds begin again, and Menander sees first an arrow narrowly flashing past his leg, and then the larger and more unsettling shape of a speeding javelin sail over his shoulder. Either one could have ended his life, but there's no time now, as once again the world contracts to the 60 metres in front, to the Persian horsemen, and the Macedonian line still coming. Good helmets, high-quality body armour and fast horses mean the Macedonian cavalry charge won't be broken by a few flights of arrows. Menander feels the ground shaking as several thousand horses pound the ground, creating a tidal wave of sharp lances, long spears and murderous Macedonians. An arrow clangs into Menander's helmet, stunning him for a second but doing no damage, and they're now just 30 metres away. Menander looks for a Persian horseman ahead of him and sees a brightly dressed rider coming straight at him. He tightly grips the body of his powerful horse, trained to charge and fight in the chaos of battle, and gets a final grip on his lance. That familiar feeling of the world contracting into a single point comes over Menander once again, and there's nothing that exists apart from the face and chest of the flamboyant Persian and the tip of Menander's lance. The movement, noise and colour are brighter than ever, but Menander sees and hears nothing apart from the moving chest and the shifting lance point. At the last second, the rider veers to his left, and Menander shifts the point of his spear to the right, and as they cross, punches it into the Persian rider's chest with enormous energy, 
smashing him off his horse and snapping the lance into pieces. Dropping the now useless lance, Menander draws his small sword just in time as a Persian rider in the third or fourth rank tries to stab him with his light javelin. A heavy sword sweep knocks the wooden shaft aside, and another swing cuts deeply into the rider's arm, and Menander kicks on his horse to move through the line. A Macedonian rider to Menander's left rocks back, and Menander sees him staring at a metre of wood sticking out of his stomach as a thrown javelin pierces his armour and shreds organs and splinters bone. Menander feels a continued pressure from behind as the charge continues into the line and moves forward to engage a Persian from behind, slicing deeply into his back as he spins his horse around, and then taking a heavy spear blow on his own linen breastplate that wins him. He looks to his right and sees a Persian soldier on the ground, pulling his spear back for another thrust, a deadly thrust. But before the spearman can attack again, a shock of noise announces more cavalry, and the spearman's punched off his feet by a massive horse. As Alexander moves in front of Menander, followed by the most aggressive and well-armoured cavalry on the field. The Persian cavalry is done now, and their short javelins are no match for the Macedonian's long lance. Stragglers who survived the Macedonian charge now panic and run where they can. A spearman nearby means that the Persian infantry is close, and they have lost the protection of their cavalry. Before Menander can react, another heavy rumbling gets his attention, and looking behind, he sees a heavy Macedonian infantry moving towards their position, and hears a trumpet call that signals a cavalry move to the left flank. Menander signals his soldiers, still following him, and begins to cut into the Persian cavalry still alive to the left. Just as the horses of Menander and the Macedonian cavalry clear the centre of the Persian line and begin smashing into the cavalry on the left flank, the Macedonian phalanx hits the now weakened centre. Strong men, well-disciplined and trained with huge spears, strong shields and good armour, they meet conscripted and inexperienced Persians with little armour, short-distance weapons and no stomach for this fight. That Persian infantry is cut down, and before the infantry battle has truly begun, the Persian line disintegrates and routs. This means the Greek hoplite mercenaries fighting on the Persian side, the only force that could truly contend with the Macedonians, is now isolated and flanked. Of the roughly 18,000 Greek mercenaries, half are killed, and the rest sold into slavery. Menander feels the horrible pressure and tension of the battle begin to wane, he no longer sees large blocks of Persians in good order, and now can only see streams, lines, smatterings and panicked groups of the enemy. The next, long battle call winds into the air, repeated over and over, and this is the signal that brings the end to the humiliating defeat. The cavalry now follows that signal, and Menander rides with his soldiers for their final duty. Before the battle, fear and tension reigned, but now the enemy has turned and run, and it's a frenzy and a lust that takes over. Menander spurs towards the fleeing Persians, with a thousand riders behind him, swords and spears in hand, ready to run down the fleeing Persians to the last man. Three hours later, ten Persians drip blood onto the ground for every Macedonian and Greek, and Alexander has his first victory over the Persian Achaemenid Empire. Thanks for joining me for this second episode of Season 1, Alexander and his Cavalry Commander. Today we've gone from the aftermath of the Battle of Thebes and moved with Menander to the Battle of the Granicus against the Persian Empire. Stay tuned for the third and final episode in this season where Menander will follow Alexander to the depths of Persian territory to modern-day Iraq and fighting the stunning Battle of Galgamela in 331 BCE. Scythe chariots, huge cavalry engagements, elephants and a fleeing emperor all await for you in the next episode.